Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke and this is the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to let everybody know, gang, in honor of the holidays, we, my team and I, are giving away $100 a week through DrAndyRourke.com. All you got to do is be signed up and receiving the Dr. Andy Rourke newsletter. It's just heading over to DrAndyRourke.com and sign up. And all that's going to happen is you're going to get emails once a week with the best articles on the DrAndyRourke.com website. All great stuff. Not super spammy. Not super salesy. It's just us talking about what's going on in vet medicine. And so, weekly $100 giveaways to people on the newsletter. You know that there's some people out there who would love to have a little bit extra in their Christmas stocking. This is how we can make it happen. Head over to DrAndyRourke.com. Get signed up for the newsletter. And you're already in for the drawings. Gang, I've got a great interview for you today. It's something that is really important for our profession, for the majority of us uh, veterinarians and veterinary technicians. I think it's important for where our profession is going. My guest today is Dr. Sam Morello. Sam is a equine surgeon. She focuses on orthopedic. She is on the faculty at the University of Madison, Wisconsin uh, as an associate professor of large animal surgery. She has not one but two articles published in this month's issue of the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. The first one is Demographics, Measures of Professional Achievement, and Gender Differences for Diplomats of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons in 2015. And the second is the Intersection of Personal and Professional Lives for Male and Female Diplomats of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons in 2015. I was thrilled to sit down with Dr. Morello because I got to meet her at the Women's Veterinary Leadership Forum earlier this year in Washington, D.C., and watch her present her research and her findings, and it is really amazing. I love the depth that she presents this. I love the interpretation that she gives to it. It is very rich. I feel like it's a very balanced presentation of the data and the, the information that's there. I love that she's very pragmatic and she talks in solutions. She talks about how our profession can move forward, how we can be better, what making changes in day-to-day practice looks like to help address gender disparity in our profession. And she talks about what it looks like for our profession if we don't make some changes and what the long-term implications are in other industries that have become feminized and what that has meant for them. And so I think this is super valuable. I hope that you will give it some time and some attention and some thought. Thank you again to Dr. Morello for being here. And with that, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Hey, everybody. I am here with the incredible, the amazing Dr. Sam Morello from uh, the University of Wisconsin, correct? Yeah. Are you all right now? Yeah, Midwest. Midwest. Cool. So you are, um, I saw you, we met at the uh, Women's Veterinary Leadership Forum just about a month or so ago in Washington, D.C., and you were presenting a bit of your research that actually just came out in Jabmits, in the December issue, you had not one but two published articles. 
Yeah, it was it was a ton of information we couldn't fit it. So um, I'm it's out online now. I think it'll be published in the December one issue, which should be in people's mailboxes any day. I'll put the links in the uh, show description as well, so you can just pop it open on in iTunes and and pull your links out. So yeah. I will get that stuff together. But um, it was fascinating. You talked about the gender pay gap in veterinary medicine, specifically with boarded surgeons. Right. So, um, it, you know, it was the first, it was the first set of, uh, research projects I'd done, um, looking at the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, because I am a veterinary surgeon. Um, but the information I talked about at that meeting, which was, uh, I think, as you've already mentioned, a fantastic, um, just melding of minds and sort of sharing of, um, information. I talked about some follow-up studies I've done um, among the among diplomats of the College of Internal Medicine yeah. as well, which so that includes not just internists, but also cardiologists, oncologists, and neurologists. So that data is not published yet, but I'm finishing those manuscripts. So I think, you know, you heard all of that. And even though that's not all in the manuscripts that are published today, I think we can talk about it all Excellent. Um, in our conversation. Yeah. Wonderful. So, okay, before we get into this, because I do want to unpack this with you, and there's a lot of stuff here. I think you're fascinating. I would like to know a little bit. So you are not just a, a surgeon. You are a large animal. You're an equine surgeon. And you've been doing this research uh, on uh, on pay disparity, work-life balance in, among veterinary specialists for years. How did you how did you come to this space? Tell us a little bit kind of about yeah. what, what, drew, what drew you here. Yeah, so... Um, I, it, it, it's a couple things, um, both personal and professional, I think. Um, I started this study, I started this work back in 2015. There's actually the survey study here among surgeons happened in 2015. And I can sort of remember the, the, the flagship moment. Um, I, was, I was at the ACBS conference um, in San Diego back in October in 2014. And I was sitting around with a couple of my dearest friends who I've gotten to know because I'm a large animal surgeon. Um, mm -hmm. They are also large animal surgeons. And we were kind of talking about, you know, our, our lives and people that we know and people that we work with as surgeons. And, and I was also sort of thinking back to at home, um, the students that I've been mentoring about wanting to become surgeons, especially large animal surgeons, and comparing the experiences that my friends and colleagues and I have sort of subjectively observed in the profession and the way I was starting to have conversations with students I was mentoring. Um, and those conversations weren't just about, oh, I want to do a residency and this is what that's going to be like. They were starting to veer more to into, you know, topics about, all right, well, what's my life going to be like? And um, there are a lot of young women there were a lot of young women that were even on the verge of, you know, getting married and thinking about starting families. And so those were different topics of conversations that we were starting to have sitting in my office. And so I came away from that meeting and I remember sitting here actually in my office and there was one student in particular who was really heavily weighing the decision about um, pursuing a career in, in large animal surgery. Um, at a time when she was about to get engaged um, and, and was thinking about um, sort of balancing what, what that career path was going to be um, against some other things in her life. Um, and I thought, you know, 
this is interesting to me. And if I'm going to offer objective evidence or, or if I'm going to offer um, advice to students, then I should do it with objective evidence. I shouldn't do it just based on my own assumptions or what I'm sitting around a brunch table talking about with my friends. So I think that there's room for this in veterinary medicine. And I started looking around and realizing that there's some good data in the human medical field, but there's really no broad approach. There's no real depth of scope to evaluating that in our profession. But it's something people talk about a lot. It's something people think about a lot. So, you know, what 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 better better way to answer that question than doing a study on it? Yeah. Scientists, that's what we do. So so your your study was impressive to say the least. So you had about fifteen hundred and fifty um, uh, surgeons that you sent the survey out to, and you mm-hmm. got over sixty percent response, right? Didn't you have eight hundred and fifty respondents? Yeah, we we had about a fifty eight percent response rate. Um, we were able to get emails for almost fifteen hundred diplomates, and and about fifty eight percent responded, which is a tremendous response rate for an online survey. I think most of us can't get surgeons to do anything that's not (laughs) surgery. And you got 850 of them to respond to you with 81 questions, right? This is a robust survey tool that you used. Yeah, it was long. So, I mean, I I came back from that conference and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do the survey. I I need to figure out a way to do this. I want to find out how people are living their lives and how they conflict and what their professional lives are like. And um, I, I recruited a, a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Sarah Colopy, who was my co-author in those studies. And I, I sat down and then she and I sat down and started writing this survey. And it, it took a long time to get it right. And, you know, arguably, maybe it's still not right. But um, to make sure that the questions made sense, that they were the right scope, that they're worded, correctly that they're as unbiased as, as possible. You can read the survey, the survey itself in JAVMA. It's a supplementary item um, for anybody that's interested. But um, I think that that response rate speaks to the fact that it's something people wanted to talk about, um, which was perhaps one of the most poignant early findings for me. As, I, as we sent it out and we started seeing the number of responses come back in, it was kind of this, oh my God moment, like this, this does matter. This isn't just interesting to, to me or to us. This is interesting to hundreds and hundreds of other people. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's what we've continued to find out as I've, as I've sort of progressed over the years in, in other studies and also just getting out there and getting to talk to people, it, it matters. And that was the whole point. You had rapt attention at your presentation, and and I was I was one of those who was rapt. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I think this is fascinating for me because one, I I think this gets at the heart of a healthy future for veterinary medicine and us making the profession that we want to have. And then two, I think this is a larger conversation in our society as a whole, and I just feel like it's so great to have some real insight and data into it. And so let's um, how do you want to? How do you want to unpack this? You 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 walked us through it so wonderfully in DC. Do you want to just kind of start to lay out the pieces? Sure. I think that's um I yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to go at it. So, you know, I I, I think about this approach um in two ways. This approach to understanding the work life and the personal life and sort of the intersection of those things for veterinarians. Um, in, in, in two ways. And one is we're scientists. We're all trained as scientists. So, so doing it as a, 
as a objective sort of survey study is a way to engage with the way we're trained to investigate things and think about things um, and and to to feed it back to everybody in a way that we all already know how to digest data, right? We know how to read research and understand it. Um, but the other thing, to put it into a broader context, you said something about how it's valuable in society. You know, there's been this sort of um, workplace dynamic shift um, in some of the bigger companies, the Googles of the world, the Deloitte's, the, you know, the, the big progressive um, especially tech type companies where they replace their human resources department with their people analytics department, with a people analytics department, which is like understanding how people are. It's not just some sort of sterile environment that people go in and they have a couple simple procedural questions answered and that's how benefits get structured and, you know, workplace um, uh, issues get resolved. But it's more about understanding how to attract talent, retain people, improve hiring, um, and improve just sort of workplace happiness. And, and from a broader perspective, that's kind of what we're thinking about in veterinary medicine, right? Um, there, are, uh, there are lots of jobs out there and, and getting people, and there are actually not enough veterinarians for some of those jobs, especially in some specialty medicine. Um, in, in some areas, the opposite of true. There are too many veterinarians and not enough, um, not enough spots. For, for large animal surgeons, there are a lot of us and not a lot of jobs, but small animal surgeons, there are tons of jobs. Um, and so understanding those dynamics and, and how they're going to work, especially in um, a shifting environment where corporate medicine is becoming a bigger part of the private practice environment and private practice is pulling some of our specialists away from the academic world, which was not really true 20 years ago or even maybe 10. Um, so that idea, um, looking at how some of those big um, industries have has changed the way they look at managing their people and thinking about veterinary medicine as the same sort of construct and saying, well, can we do the same thing? Can we just use this big people analytics, data-driven approach to understanding how our workforce works, um, how our workforce works today? And then, of course, the next element, which is realizing that we're a different workforce than we were 10 years ago, and we're going to be a different workforce even in 10 years. And the majority of that is because we're just more and more female than we used to be. And I think women work differently. And I think we're going to talk a lot about that in this conversation. And that's not just, that's, that's not a, a function of, of bias or discrimination. That's just a function of people making choices differently. Um, people getting through their day differently. Women are different than men. Um, men are different than men and women are different than women. People are just different than each other. But overall, I think um, a feminized workforce functions differently and that isn't. And learning how to understand that is going to help us direct our profession a little bit more effectively. No, I, I completely agree. I, I love it. I love it when you laid it out like that. So, well, let's get into it. So do you want to start talking about the, the differences that we see in men and women? Do you want to start in yeah. uh, in pay scale or do you want to start in... Uh, and life choices, what's, what opens the conversation up more nicely? Well, I, 
the way I laid it out in my talk is um, I like to kind of um, I like to kind of give the objective differences first, and then kind of talk about the more subjective climate type differences second, because um, I think one or one of those is more easily to measure or understand, and then the other kind of packs the punch to contrast it with. Right. So. Um, you know, the first thing I do is is show the type the the demographics of people that respond. Um, and in our in the surgery college study, um, the surgery college is predominantly male still. Um, it's one of the only places in veterinary medicine that that truly still is. When I surveyed the college, a just over 60% of the college was still male. And so actually the majority of our respondents were male. But what you see in, 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 in those respondents when you look at them by age, the younger and younger they get, the more female they get. And I actually was able to look at um, individuals who matched into residencies from about 2011 to 2016, and over 60% of those who had matched into residencies were female. So it kind of proves that point of where we're going and how right. different it's going to be than where we are. Um, so then I started to look at where people work. Um, and as you would imagine, the majority of small animal surgeons work in private practice. And that's kind of consistent with what I would term like a labor economy, right? Like there are many more jobs in private practice as compared with academia. And that's not really true in large animal. People are kind of equally distributed among private practice and academia because, again, that's where the jobs are. Okay. Um, people tend to work a bit more um, hours in academia as small animal surgeons actually compared with private practice. And that kind of fits. There's so many people these days working four day work weeks or even three day work weeks as a full time job. That's not even part time employment anymore um, in private practice. Uh, as, as specialists, and I think even not as specialists, as emergency doctors or even as general practitioners. Um, I think that there's a there's there's more flexibility to that work day in private practice, which is something that is attractive about that that spot. Um, I was able to show that female surgeons, um, and that's grouping the large and small animal surgeons together, were slightly more likely than men uh, to work in academia. And to me, that's an interesting finding because there are some things about academia. Um, that have nothing to do with the number of hours you're working that make it a little bit different than private practice. And that's when I start to think about, all right, well, as people making choices and perhaps women making choices differently than men, um, you know, is there something there? So in academia, you're surrounded by, by more people, by more peers, if nothing else. Um, we could show that in the data specifically. So, for example, if you're a surgeon, um, you are more likely to be around more other surgeons when you work in academia. The average large animal surgeon is the only large animal surgeon in private practice. The average small animal surgeon either works alone or works with one other person in private practice. So over 50% of small animal surgeons work alone or with one other person in private practice. But in academia, those groups are much bigger. Most people work with a couple other surgeons. So, you know, there's more opportunity for peer support, for mentorship, for collaboration. And then, of course, there are people around when you need to take time off for whatever reason, because 
you need parental leave, you have a sick family member, you want to go on vacation, some other sort of, you know, life situation comes up and you need some time off. Um, and there, there, there are myriad other differences between academia and private practice, but those are the sorts of nuances that, um, you know, my brain starts sticking when I see those little differences and I think, well, what might drive some women to think a little bit more strongly about an academic career? Um, is there something to that job that gives them a little bit more? Do you think that there's a different kind of status that comes with an academic job versus uh, a private practice job? Like, do people feel differently about being on the faculty at the University of Florida or at Cornell versus working at um, Johnson and Smith Equine Hospital? Sure. You know, I think that I think that historically that was true, and I'm not sure that that's true anymore. Um, there are certainly plenty of private practices that 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 function just like an academic hospital does. It has they have the same number of specialists that publish, um, you know, a lot of research articles that, that you go to a conference and the same people, you know, the, they're specialists from those hospitals. They're speaking at those conferences the same proportion of time that academic people are speaking. So um, is that true of every private practice? No, but it is the goal of some of those private practice hospitals um, to really function as an academic environment. They train residents, they train interns. So I don't think that's exclusively true. Um, but for other people who who do have a more um, uh, you know more personal focus on on research, on teaching, and the sort of advancement and 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 sort of status, I guess, that comes with that, then then perhaps that's the case. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so we looked at that, and then, and then from there, you know, having having laid all those things out, and and on call, uh, on call was actually another big one. Not so much for small animal people don't do a ton of on call in in small animal, um, whether or not you're in academia or private practice. Large animal um, for me that was a, a huge finding. More than fifty percent of large animal practitioners. Um, large animal surgeons in private more than 15 nights a month. I mean, which that's why I'm an, that's one of the reasons I'm in academia um, because most academics, um, most academic large animal surgeons, they were on call like four to seven nights a month on average. Um, and, you know, that's that lifestyle choice. Um, that's really what, what, what that ends up being. Um, so sort of defining what those types of environments looked like and who was living in each of them. Men and women did not work different numbers of hours overall. Um, and they were not on call different numbers of nights per month, um, between the two. Um, and then from there, I went on to kind of define, um, how people were sort of quote unquote successful in their jobs. And I think that that's a that's a uh, that's a shady way of saying that because success is not really you know a, a definable characteristic uh, between people, right? You and I might define success very differently from a hundred other people out there. But if you can do it objectively, the ways I thought we might do it were by how much money you're making because that's right. quantifiable. Sure. Um, and then in private practice, if you're an owner or not. And in academia, how you advance um, 
among the ranks. So assistant, associate, full professor, um, even becoming an associate or, an, or, or a full dean. Uh, and so again, those are objective measures and it doesn't mean that that's everybody's definition of what being successful is. But sure. in all those areas, we, you know, that's where we first started seeing the, the big gender differences with, with income perhaps being the most um, poignant for everybody. So, yeah. so overall, um, we saw an, an 18% um, income gap among men and women. So men made 18% more money than, than women did. And we were careful um, to make sure that that wasn't because um, of, of some of the other mediating factors. So men were older, men did tend to own practices more. We controlled for all those variables. Um, I won't bore your listeners with all of them. They can read them in the paper. But if you can imagine it as a, as a re relevant covariate, we controlled for it. And that, that statistic is still relevant even when you control for all those things. Yeah, you, you really went through, kind of went through everything that could possibly be, you know, driving these sorts of things. And after kind of removing all that variance, you're still coming out at 18% difference. Right. And, and, I, I want to, so it, it's 18% overall, it ends up being 8% in academia, but then it ends up being 25% in, um, in, in private practice. And so th this is going to sound a little technical or academic here, because um, I want to make this make sense. Um, so it's statistically significant, even when you control for all those variables. What it doesn't mean is if you were to say take out the the women who were let's say 33 in the study and the men who were 68 you wouldn't have a different percentage it just means it's still statistically significant what you can do you probably can account for some proportion of that of that income difference by some of the differences among men and women so for example men are practice owners more commonly than women are. Like about 50% of men were practice owners in some capacity, either like shareholders, they own less than 50%, or majority owners, they own greater than 50% of their practice. About 50% of, 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 um, of the male diplomats were practice owners, and only about 25% of women were. So that's going to account for some of that gap. Um, and you know, there, there are a bunch of things like that. But what I relate it back to is there's, you know, this is what labor economists do, like labor, econ which I am not, not even close. But, <laughs> the, you know, they, they go through, the, they go through the, the income gap. They study the income gap and they look at the various things that contribute to it. And some of the people that have done the best work on this um, are, are labor economists at, at Cornell University. Um, uh, Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn. And when they study it, they look at those things. They look at do women work fewer hours than men and in, in the U.S. labor force, and they do a little bit. And when they, when they um, factor in women having children, that accounts for a little bit of the income gap. And they can account for about 60% of the income gap with those things, but 40% of it, they can't account for anything other than the fact that women are women and men are men. And so we didn't do that with our data. All we did was say, 
statistically, you can control for those variables, and statistically, men still make 25% more than women in private practice. Um, I can't tell you what proportion of that 25% is probably just because women are women and men are men alone. All those other variables are going to account for some proportion of that 25%. Mm-hmm. But some of that 25% is probably going to be because women are women and because men are men. And some of it's going to be accounted for if you were able to um, uh, uh, quantitatively measure exactly how much of it was because um, men own practices and um, you know, women that have children reduce their working hours, which they do mm-hmm. more so than men do. Th- th- is, that, is that making sense the way I'm explaining it? Yeah, I think so. 25% in private practice is staggering, Sam. Staggering. I mean, that's, that is, that's bigger than, you know, we, we hear that 87 cents on the dollar sort of statistics thrown around and people argue with it. Um, what you're talking about is bigger than that. So is there, is there any way to conceptualize what difference being a practice owner makes? You know what yeah. I mean? Because that, yeah. that's a pretty big variable there. So yeah, how, how do you get your mind around that to... To, yeah. to put everything in proportion. So we looked at that a little bit. Um, I, I, I believe the numbers were practice owners tended to make about $100,000 a year more than associates did. Okay. So if you took, the average woman was an associate and, and most men actually were practice owners in some capacity. Um, and so that, that's one way, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Um, okay. I, I think an interesting way to look at it too is it doesn't matter what the little covariates are, right? It matters that that's the amount of money that people are taking home at the end of the day. Yeah. And it also matters in private practice because for most specialists, um, what people are taking home is a function of what the revenue they're generating is. And it doesn't mean somebody's not working real hard, working, you know, it doesn't mean somebody's working less hard than somebody else. But I do think it means people are working differently. And so it matters to the practice owner. It matters to the bottom line. And I think when you have a workforce that may be working a little bit differently in their practice environment, it's worth taking a look at how is your workforce working differently if they're making 25% less at the end of the year. Yeah, I, I really want to unpack this because this is this is what really sparks my interest. I see a lot of hope and opportunity here in, in, in understanding this and making our profession better um, and make it better for, for everyone inside of it. That, that That's what I see. So, so uh, man, a, a, a number of things that came into mind and, and from, from the times that we've talked before as well. Can you talk a little bit about production-based compensation and how that factored in and what you saw in your research? Because I think I've heard you talk about that before as well. Yeah. So we didn't ask about it specifically. We didn't say, we didn't ask people what their production percentage was. Um, We asked what their annual gross income was. So what did they bring home at the end of the year? So I can't tell you that I can prove, you know, perhaps women are their, their contracts aren't as good as men are, that their base is lower or that their production is lower. But I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. And if I had to guess based on what I've heard, what I know and um, um, 
and what I understand about how people have um, a lot of private and public entities have done to make sure that there is equity in, in those sorts of baselines. I don't think that that's going to be the main source. Okay. I don't think it's that women are coming in with much lower bases, although there is probably an element to all of that. Um, I just can't prove it. I think some of it is coming from how people are living their day. And like I said, women aren't working fewer hours than men, not overall. Um, I think some things change when individuals have children, and we can talk about that in a bit. Um, but women aren't working less overall. There's some data in the human medical field about how women spend somewhere between 8 to 10% more time in a room with their clients, um, their patients, talking to them. Um, and I believe that to be true in veterinary medicine. Um, that's not time that we monetize, uh, especially as a surgeon, that's not time that we monetized. It's probably where some of the smallest of our, of our income is being generated. Um, sure. I mean, if, if, you know, I think most vet clinics have, they have an exam fee, right? You know, it's like here, here is the exam fee for our hospital. And if it takes 10 minutes or if it takes 30 minutes, it's still the physical examination. I think, I, 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 I think that's an important point. You know, I think that the more time we spend with a client, we were accomplishing a lot of good. We're probably building goodwill. We're building trust. We're building good relationships. Hopefully, we're increasing our compliance. We're going to get better surgical um, recovery protocols at home, rehabilitation, things like that. Yeah. But we don't. Our current model doesn't monetize that. No, it doesn't. Nor does it monetize um, uh, paperwork, phone calls with the client, which I think probably follows similar trends. Another thing that I don't think that I can. Um, veterinary medicine, um, but there's some other data that I think suggests this is probably true, is uh, I think the types of cases, perhaps, at least when we're talking about surgeons, that women and men operate on, my assumption would be that more men um, have traditionally been doing more of the elective orthopedic caseload and maybe even emergency orthopedic caseload compared with men, women. In, in human surgery, orthopedics is vastly d dominated by men. Um, and even the uh, areas in veterinary medicine where orthopedics um, uh, sort of, um, the orthopedic type societies have been traditionally more represented. Um, men have been more represented there than women. And so those are some of the biggest moneymaker cases. Going in and doing five TPLOs a day you know, generates more money than going in and doing some mass removals or some of the soft tissue type right. surgeries. And and so I think I think those are all things that factor into what that twenty five percent ends up being. Yeah. Um, why Why do you think that academia is so much better? Like academia is eight percent versus private practice twenty five. Are there factors there from a pay structure that you think are important? Yeah. So. Um, you know, in academia, there's no, your, your income is not tied to what you're doing throughout the day, right? You just have a salary. And traditionally, uh, industries where money is linked to the time you spend doing things or what you're doing in that time, like a lot of business, law, 
Um, those are places where the income gaps have been the biggest and men have dominated those professions traditionally. I think law is a place that's tra that's changing over time, but um, those are very sort of what, a term that you'd use in sociology as agentic or, or, or male, um, sort of male-dominated type uh, professions. And when you eliminate that element, um, I think you eliminate some of that income gap because it, it sort of levels that playing field a little bit or it removes, it, it, it removes the thing that drives some of that, um, some of that pay differential. I also think that academia has been um, has been thoughtful and and compelled to be thoughtful for a number of years about doing internal reviews, equity reviews, about making sure that everybody is getting paid on an equal scale. And even as those things might drift over time because of various negotiation processes, mm. onboarding new people. Um, from time to time, I know that it's an exercise where the the deans or the department chairs will look back and say, you know, are, are things still fair? Let's do a review and let's make sure everybody's sort of up to date. And that probably doesn't happen in most in most hospital most yeah. private hospitals in this company. I, I completely agree. I I think that we're in a place where I think mindsets really have to change. I I've heard of uh, practice owners or practice managers who, who I can empathize with interviewing two different veterinarians and one will be male and one will be female and they'll say to the person well what kind of salary do you need and if if the male throws out a higher number uh and the uh the practice manager's like yep we can do that if the female veterinarian then throws out a lump a lower number they'll often say sounds great and then they'll take the lower number and now we've got this this discrepancy between our two doctors that are coming at the same place and in the one hand, the manager says, well, it's my job to keep costs down as much as I can. And so if she says that she'll take less money, then I'll give it to her. I think that we're going to have to have a reckoning with that in our profession and, and really start to change our mentality towards equity is important in, uh, in, in our profession, across our profession. I, I think we're going to have to start moving a bit more towards wage transparency among doctors, which there's almost none right yeah. now. But I, I think that that is a philosophic change that we have to make. But I, I do see a lot of signs that we're going in that direction. I, I completely agree. I think that, um, so first of all, I want to make it clear that I, nobody should be penalized for making the good money that they're making. The, the people right. who are like raking it in, good for them. And, sure. you know, and, and on the other side, sometimes... Um, if, if the people who are making 25% less, maybe they don't want to work three extra hours that day and they're going to go home earlier. They don't want to do X, Y, Z case. But the point that you made that I, that I think is the most important, um, other than equity, of course, overall being um, something that should drive every every practice manager to make sure that it is it is established within their their work environment, is the transparency issue. Because... Um, you know, almost every other profession, somebody has access to being able to get out there and say, well, okay, I'm a, um, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a salesman. What's the average income for a salesman? I'm going to go look it up on the internet or I'm going to call my buddy here or there and I'm going to talk, you know, it's, people have the ability to look that up. And when they walk into a room to 
ask for a job or negotiate their salary, they have a number, they have a number to use. Um, and veterinarians often don't. And I, I think it's not so bad for somebody who is coming out of veterinary school because the AVMA does a good job of publishing starting salaries. Um, and I haven't personally used the income calculator because I think it's mostly geared towards um, general practitioners and perhaps more small animal general practitioners. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not a, it, it, I don't think it's that useful a tool for, for specialists and for specialists in a variety of situations, um, especially for uh, the way that it changes if you are a surgeon in the Northeast versus if you are a surgeon in the Southwest. Sure. It's a, it's a different world and you're working in a different um, environment. And so having transparency and having a way to access data that you can use and then present to somebody so that you have negotiating power, um, I think is going to be valuable for everybody out there and specifically valuable for the woman that you described who has to walk in and say, I don't know what to ask for, so I'll lowball it. Yeah. I think one of the things that terrifies people about wage transparency is I think that term gets thrown around a lot and not often defined. And so I think some people, that when they hear wage transparency, what they imagine is everyone in your practice knows what everyone else makes. And I think that I find that to be terrifying. I think that's a, I think that's a nightmare scenario. You know, um, I think it's a nightmare scenario because competition uh, or comparison is the thief of joy. And so, you know, when people, when you look around and you go, well, I don't understand why that person makes more than me or blah, blah, blah. And I also think that any of us who have been in practice know that sometimes, um, sometimes people are unrealistic in their comparisons to other people. You know what I mean? Um, and so I guess where I'm getting at, what I'm getting at with that is, uh, I think that when we think if everyone in your practice knows what everyone else makes, we end up in this place where there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of people yeah. who um, who feel competitive or they feel slighted or they don't think that the person at the front desk should make more than me, the technician in the back. That's garbage. And we just don't know each other. And, and it, it, you get in this really dicey situation. I think what you and I are talking about when we talk about wage transparency is guidelines, you know, um, averages available. I really like some sort of a... Um, a, uh, a level system in the practice where a level one technician can expect mm -hmm. to make this amount of money or about this amount of money. Level yeah. two is about here, but some sort of standards and guidelines so that you're not just floating out there in a sea of ignorance and wondering what's fair and what's not, but having some sort of structure and guideline to, to kind of pull people into alignment. Would you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree. And, all, and also having, because I, I agree with what you said as well, just how it fosters competition. So having some sort of objective, faceless, open access thing out there, because I, I think that helps both workers and employers, right? So that you can say, am I, you know, am I up to standard with the rest of the industry if I want to be competitive for hiring people, retaining people? You know, if I'm at a price point in my own practice where I can be a little bit more competitive, I mean, I think, I think it's valuable for everybody. I think it helps push the profession forward as well. Um, sure. And I think that if you, um, I, I think if you if you want to go so far as to say, well, at some point, perhaps we need to think about, does it ultimately um, make the profession healthier to try and 
create a more um, uh, create a more equal gendered workforce again to so that we're not as predominantly female. I mean, we're over 80% women in veterinary schools now. So as part of our goal to perhaps bring men back into the profession. And I think one of the ways to do that is to maintain and improve salaries, or at least to be able to show that some of our salaries are really that good. Um, it is one of the things that drives feminization of professions, having low salaries. Well, let's let's unpack that a bit, because that was some some stuff that you and I have talked about that I had never heard before. Um, can you talk a little bit about feminization of an industry and what that looks like? Because that is very much what we're, what we're going through and what we have been going through. Yeah, so... Um, so that the, the veterinary medicine, I think, on a technical level, um, became predominantly female in um, I think 2009. I'm gonna get it's either 2007 or 2009 when it shifted to over 50 percent. And I don't, I haven't done the um, demographic sort of plotting to show exactly where it is today, but we're probably around 60 percent, and it'll continue to go that way. And so, again, if you read. Um, if you read a lot of sort of sociology or, um, or sort of the labor economics of things and you try to understand what the feminization of, of a profession does and or why it happens, it's associated with um, the two main things are that we care about from an industry perspective is a um, decrease in incomes, a decrease in average incomes. Um, and a sort of shift in the way people look at that profession. So I'll try to talk about this separately. Um, and, and so the, sh the decrease in average incomes, there's not a real consensus, I think, on exactly why that happens. There are two sort of main hypotheses called devaluation and queuing. Um, and I think it's probably a component of both. And devaluation means that um, as more and more women go into the profession, the profession is devalued and is sort of valued less, and so incomes go down. Um, and queuing is that as there are lower incomes, fewer men want to go into the profession because they see those lower incomes. So, I mean, that all, when you, when you talk about it that way, it sounds like it's really sterile and happens in a vacuum, which is not the way the world works. And I think if you think about veterinary medicine, you can imagine probably both of those things are true, at least from a financial perspective, especially when you bring in the sorts of things that we're dealing with today with huge debts, right? Mm -hmm. And so perhaps somewhat more economically minded men are, are taking a look and saying, you know, is that really, is that really what I want to do for a living, at least from a financial perspective? Um, there's a bit of data that I didn't publish because it's qualitative in nature and I, I, I didn't have the time or space or, it, or really the expertise at that time to do a lot of the qualitative analysis, but I did a little. Um, and encoding some of the short answer type questions that people, um, uh, that, that I had in the study, um, men were more likely to cite economic reasons for some of their decision making than men were by, you know, over 30% of men would cite something economic in a decision-making factor and, and uh, somewhere around 11% of women did. So, right. so it's a real, it's a real thing. Um, and it's probably true in the rest of society. Yeah. Do you think that's a, let me walk that back. So historically there's very much been a, 
a cultural pressure for men to be sort of family providers. And yeah. I think that that's changed a lot as, as women have moved into the workforce and become, um, yeah. become earners and providers. But I still feel like that, that cultural pressure on men exists. I, I think I, I'm just being honest. I, I think I have felt that in my life and my wife is, um, she's a, uh, she's an academia as well. She's a, a, a college professor at Furman university and she's brilliant and very successful. Um, but I do think, I, I think as you know, she's very independent and, and we've always run our marriage very much like a partnership. And I stick, I think I still feel some pressure to, you know, to, to yeah. earn and provide, even though that's, we're past that, you know, like that, that's, that's ridiculous. But, um, do, do you think that type of cultural pressure still exists or do you see any evidence of that? Well, I think that, I think this cultural pressure still exists. I think that when people talk about the millennial generation, they talk about it being more egalitarian and that's probably even going to be true, um, with the generations that are coming past it. But those are also groups that are fairly heavily focused on being successful, climbing the ranks, making some money. So whether or not it's about, you know, being the provider in that sort of gendered role, or it's right. about just being successful among yourself and not taking the back seat, um, gotcha. then, then it's all still going to be true, I think. No, that's, um, a, that's a fantastic point. Yeah. And, and, you know, but to your point in the, stu in the study, um, it, it, surgeons, as, as you see, make pretty good money. Um, it's even, even when women are making less money and people in academia are making less money than private practice, people are still making far more than the average American. Right. Right. And, and more than even a lot of average general practitioners are going to be making. Um, but men were much more likely to be, um, maybe not much, but men were definitely more likely to be the primary earner in their household than women were, even among surgeons. Um, a lot of them were sort of equal earners, but men were still more likely to be average earners. And, and sometimes it comes down to that, right? Um, that it's not about um, what you, what your um, emotion needs to be. It's that you're your, your family structure kind of got set up that way. And therefore, therefore, you know, your job maybe comes, comes second because, or your job comes first or comes second because that's the load that's on you now. And for some of those, some of those men, they're the ones that are bringing home the bacon. And for some of those women, they're not the ones that are bringing home the bacon. And so family dynamics have um, adjusted to mm -hmm. say, all right, well, if you're not, then you have other responsibilities in the family. And, you know, I, I, I don't exactly know, but if you take a really um, sort of quantitative approach to it like that, it's one way to, to look at it. Uh, it's one way to look at it about how people make those decisions about do I need to make more money or do I not? Right. Let's start to talk a little bit more about, uh, about lifestyle choices when we talk about, um, yeah. yeah, let's go ahead and weave that in. Okay. So, um, well, I think the lifestyle choices, um, that, that's the hardest thing to measure, but that ends up being one of the most interesting things that came out of this. Um, because it, it, thinking back to, you asked me, why did I embark on the study? And, and one of the things that I had sort of noticed was that 
so many fewer of my large animal surgeon colleagues who were women had either gotten married or have had children as compared to my male colleagues or even a lot of the small animal ones. And that all ended up being true. And uh, with respect to my data, I was sort of able to statistically prove that um, to a pretty Im impressive degree um, in some situations. Um, and what I think that I, I learned really from looking at all of that and, and even from reading some of the comments that people wrote in the short answer parts of the study, which again are not included in, in the manuscripts, um, were that ultimately you see these differences and you see that fewer women get married overall as large animals or as, as surgeons, as large and small animal surgeons and fewer women have children. But um, people just make their own choices. This is not a, it, it's a, it's a tough profession for sure. It's a tough profession to balance those things. But people are making the choice not to have a family, not to start a family. They may have, um, they may have been up against kind of a harder um, or a steeper climb to make that happen when they do. Um, uh, but again, it, it, it's individual choice. It's not people um, being forced down one path or another in the majority of cases. And then subsequently, when we look at individuals who have had children, um, we see that people reduce their working hours, but those, that reduction is significantly greater for women than men. Um, and a, to relate it a little bit back to, to the income gap, uh, we were able to show that for every about 10 hours that you're working in private practice, there's about a 7% income um, boost that comes with working for 10 more hours. So if you think about it that way, um, people that have children and reduce their working hours, you know, you can quantitatively think about how much lower an income is going to be. And for more women having children, reducing their hours to a greater degree when they have children, that income um, drop is going to be greater. So so can you just, um, can you give, can you put some numbers to that example just to flesh it out a bit? Yeah. So I think an easy way to think about it or a good example would be, let's say you were working in private practice, you're a surgeon in private practice, you're working 50 to 59 hours a week because we looked at all this semi-quantitatively like that. And um, for a nice round number, you're making $200,000. And now let's say you have a kid and you decide you're going to, you're going to drop your working hours a bit. Cause you want to, you want to spend a little less time at work. You want to spend a little more time at home. And so now you're going to go back to working about 40 to 49 hours a week. So you reduce your working hours by about 10 hours per week. There was about a 7% drop in income or change in income associated with every 10 hours worked per week, which means you would experience about a four, or about a $14,000 drop in income just with that reduction in work hours. So you would go back to working, you know, or you would go back to making about $186,000 a year just because of that reduction in work hours, if nothing else changed. 
And I think, you know, the, we were able to show again in the, in the, in the second, in the second manuscript, the second of those two manuscripts, women reduce their working hours more than men when they had kids and more women reduced their working hours um, to a greater degree than did men when they can, had children. Can you talk a little bit about the timing of children and how that affects things? Yeah. Having, yeah. Early, having kids earlier in your career versus later. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we asked individuals, when did they have their, when did they have their first child anywhere from before veterinary school, during veterinary school, internship residency, or during the first five years of their career or after the first five years. Um, and women were statistically likely to have their children much later in their career than men. So about a quarter of men had already had their children by the time they finished residency, whereas I think under 10% of women had, which yeah. means most women are having their kids in the first five years of their new job, which, um, you know, we, we, we think about, we all think about when we're in veterinary school, when we're in internship, when we're in residency, I think we all think like that's the hardest time of our life. Right. right. Um, but I think that we, when we get out, we realize it's those first few years of your actual career that are the hardest. Vet, vet students, turn off your uh, podcast. Just skip <laughs> ahead about two minutes. <laughs> I don't want you to hear this. But yeah, it is. So, well, at least from an earning trajectory, that's really when you cement your skills. You know what I mean? You, you really try to build efficiency, um, yeah. build, start to build your clientele out of the blocks. Yeah. And, and kind of get momentum going from, from an earning standpoint. You're learning to do your job. You're learning. How, yeah. You're, you're building a, a client base in academia. Maybe you're building a research career. I mean, you're figuring it all out and, and, and trying, trying to create a nest egg for yourself and, and build upon that. Sure. Um, and taking, taking both a chunk of time out and a chunk of earning potential out of that period um, is detrimental. And, and they've shown that in the, the US labor force where um, women who have children in their early career experience what they call the motherhood penalty. They, they experience about a 6% reduction in income um, for each child they have, um, for each child they have during their early career. They catch up, but it's not till like 20 to 25 years down the line. Um, which, you know, that's, that's late career for most of us. And, and, yeah. and that's not, um, the, the, that's not terribly relevant for a lot of, it, especially when you're trying to pay back loans and get a down payment on a house and all those sure. things. Well, I think, um, I think you may have made this point the first time we talked, uh, you know, that early money, that's the nest egg in your retirement account. You know, that's yeah. the money that you put into the retirement account and it sits for 30 years um, you know, and really take right. advantage of compounding so that when you go to retire, now you actually have a nest egg because of that early money, uh, not, not so much the right. later money. Right. Right. Yeah. The catch up doesn't factor into, to very much later on. So, so, um, so taking that time out of career and, and even again, in academia, the, the, the incomes are lower, but that's when, that's when people are kind of. We, we were also able to show an advancement gap. I was talking earlier about how more men than women owned practices, but in academia, men um, held more 
quote-unquote prestigious academic titles than women did in a, in a measurable or quantitative way that we were able to show. Um, and that's also when that happens, sort of building your early career trajectory in academia. That's, it, it's, all the same, it's all the same stuff. Right. And the other interesting part about that was in, in measuring not just when women were having those children relative to their career, but specifically when they were having children, um, the average age was just under 35. It was like 34 and a half, which, um, you know, 35 is when most, uh, the, most um, the American Medical Associations and Gynecological Associations will term that those geriatric pregnancies. Yeah. Um, uh, and not only is that more stressful, um, and more detrimental to both mother and child, um, they're more expensive too. Can, can be anyway, can be tremendously more expensive. So um, there are multiple, multiple areas of consideration in that, in that statistic. Okay. So let's turn this to the future and uh, to what we do about it. Uh, you know, you and I both have a very optimistic view, I think, on the profession and where we're going, yeah. and and we want to use this research to to make a better life for all of us who are here. Totally. So, so let's let's. What are some action steps that that you see that we should all be looking at or starting to incorporate into into what we're doing? So, um, the first point I think I want to make is that even though we just talked about surgeons, I don't think surgeons are that different than the rest of better, right? This was just my sample population. And sure. I no, think I, it, I agree. Yeah, I think it, I think it works for everybody. And, and the data that I saw in the, in the ACVIM and, and all the other subspecialty colleges, it, it all ends up being the same, which is a spoiler alert here, but um, <laughs> it, it, it all ends up being the same. And, and I think it translates to, to, to people in veterinary medicine across the board. Um, so, I think one of the big points is what we talked about, about transparency and salary and just having more transparency there is, is huge. Um, and that's a, that's a project that I have, um, that I have, you know, some thoughts about and some hopeful plans for just giving people access to those resources, people out there in the profession and people coming out of residencies, you know, who are getting ready. And, and I think another level to that is something you just mentioned um, about starting retirement and starting a nest egg. I can't tell you how many of my residents finish up and have no idea what a Roth IRA is and have no idea what a 401k is and um, just financial literacy. It's becoming a bigger part of veterinary education, um, but understanding investing and the value of compounding interest and you know how to make money off of money just as an additional component of um, your own sort of financial health. I think all of those things are really important for people across veterinary medicine to learn early um, yeah, and employ early. So um, I think that um, for, for, again, not just for people thinking about internships and residencies, but perhaps it's a, a, maybe a little bit more critical for them for certain reasons, um, having discussions earlier um, along the lines of family planning, personal life and family planning, um, is really important. And so, sometimes family is not just about having children. Sometimes it's about taking care of an elderly parent. But thinking about how an elderly parent or, or, or whatever pops up, 
So expand on that a little bit for, for me. What do you mean when you say having these conversations earlier? What does that look like? Yeah, so it means that in, in veterinary school, we're talking about you should go do these externships and go do these internships and go do this residency and heads down focus all the time. And, and that's great. You know, that, that, that's what we're here for. But we should be thoughtful about making sure that um, either we as the educators here or or people who um, who those students have relationships with out in practice, that, that they're having those types of conversations about their personal lives and their goals for their own personal life at the same time as well, and that they're doing that early. And part of my hope with this study was to have some evidence out there so they had a resource that could kind of launch some of those conversations, and they could think about it a little bit more critically and that people could offer a little bit more objective advice so that when somebody comes in and says, I really want to do a residency, I really want to do, um, you know, X, Y, or Z, uh, my husband and I are getting married or my wife and I are getting married this summer. And you say, that's great. You know, if you guys are thinking about having kids, awesome. You should read this. Think about that too. You know, have these conversations with with people around you and and figure out where this is going to work best in your life. Um, you know, there are some great articles that came out, I think, in this past year, definitely in the last two years, um, from a, a wonderful group at Tufts looking at pregnancy policies and veterinary schools, um, in um, and uh, and and. And, and, and they're, they're sometimes few and far between, but they're becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and so empowering some of the students and trainees with the knowledge and resources to go forward and use those, I think, creates a more navigable atmosphere um, yeah. for people to plan out that part of their life. I, I, no, I think that's fascinating. I, I think back to one of the most meaningful conversations I had in vet school, and I sort of had a had a mentor, a faculty member that I really looked up to, and I think he knew that I, I really looked up to him. And we were sitting in a in a, the treatment room or something. It was late at night, and and we were just talking. And he said, "You know, Andy, I've um, I've had a I've had a great career and been very successful, but I was a shitty father." And he just said that I just straight <laughs> straight out. And <laughs> How do you respond. I mean, oh yeah, it's like we're not beating around the bush. And. It, I still remember that. And I remember that's exactly what he said. But it was interesting just to have someone speak candidly about something outside of the hard medicine about like, hey, think about your life, you know? Um, and I just, so I'll always remember that that conversation and, and just kind of, it, it kind of, it gave me perspective that I did not have as a vet student. I think I had very much head down, head down, head down. And he was the first person to kind of say, hey, <laughs> You know, you should look up and look around, you know, and I, I just, that was one of those conversations I'll always remember. The other thing was, you know, my wife and I had, we had our first kid, um, when I was in vet school and I remember coming back and I was on my dermatology rotation and the, uh, the faculty members there were so wonderful and supportive, you know, and they let me really kind of work and get my stuff done. And then they were like, you get out of here, you know, like get, get yeah. out of here. And, go. and some of my colleagues had a night and day different, you know, reaction. They came back and it was almost like, we're going to test you to make <laughs> sure that you're committed enough. You know what I mean? It was like, well, we know you just had a, uh, just had a kid. We're going to see if you can suck it up because that's what we had to do. Right. 
and I think about that dichotomy and how much it meant to me. And um, it was funny, five years, when my daughter turned five, I wrote a letter to the head of the dermatology department who was wow. there. And I said, you probably don't even remember me, <laughs> but you made the a couple of decisions that really affected me. And I, I just want to say thank you. And so I do wonder if there's something, knowing how much of a difference this makes in people's lives, are there a way to support family choices in vet school without, you know, without detracting from the education, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm a less, less than veterinarian because the Durham professors allowed me to go home a little bit early and be with my new baby, you know, like right. that didn't, no. that didn't affect my outcome as a, as a professional, you know? Of, of course not. And, and, and I think, I think that's a great example because I also think that the issues we're talking about, it's not just about women having kids. It's about men being dads and wanting to be dads and not being in the situation that your, you know, your mentor was where he says, as a shitty father, like you wanting to be able to be there and be as participatory as your wife, um, during that time. So, Oh yeah. But going back to your original point, you know, men and women are different. Let's, let's be honest. The sacrifices that I made in this process were minimal (laughs) compared to to what my wife went through. As much as I like to joke about the work that I put in during the pregnancy. um, Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it it makes a difference. And I just, I love your point about having those conversations um, and just sort of being aware of what people are going through early in their their lives. And and the end of the suck it up culture. You know, I think a lot of times, especially for specialists, especially surgery seems to be the worst looking from the outside of, I did this crappy thing. I made these sacrifices and now you're going to have to make them too, just because. And I I think that's been part of our culture in vet medicine. And I just, I think we need to move past it. And and as you just said, women, women are different. And if you're going to have a profession that is as predominantly women as we're going to be, it you're going to have to. I mean, you're going to have to change the culture of the practicing profession to be more sensitive to what, whether those women are having children or not, they are the ones that are going to be having the, you know, those that, that choose to, they're the ones in those relationships that are going to be having children. Right. You're going to have more pregnancy in the workplace. You're going to have more young mothers, you know, dealing with, um, dealing with, lactation and dealing with uh, the immediate effects of having just been through a very, very difficult process on their body. So yeah, I think everybody has to be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. But back real quick to uh, uh, something that you brought up earlier. I'm just curious on your thoughts. I'll ask you straight out. Do you think we need to be trying to recruit men back into veterinary medicine? Is that uh, an action step that we should be rolling around in our minds? So... I don't, I don't think that there's any specific reason that you couldn't have a profession of all women and still not have it be a great profession of, of, of doctors. But I think that there are reasons that healthy professions are equally attractive to men and women, right? Um, and I do think it probably does establish a, um, an easier work environment, especially when you have... I mean, I, I've, I've listened to some smaller practice owners say it is difficult when you have three women at the exact same time and how do you cover your doctors 
Um, how do you cover your how do you cover your clinic during that period of time? So just from a logistic point of view, um, it's it's uh, it, 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 it's it's been a healthy profession for a long time, and it still can be. But I, but I think that it's the healthiest when it's attractive to everybody, um, and there are men and women coming into it for um, at, at more equal rates. And when I said earlier about one of the processes of feminization being that it looks different to people, the the areas. Um, the sort of fields that the sort of scientific fields that are predominantly women. We think about nursing. We think about speech language pathology. Um, those aren't scientific fields that people think of as hard science. Um, when we think of the other fields that are dominated by women, we think about elementary education. We think about administrative work. Um, again, they are fields that don't are not perceived in society the same way as fields that are either more equally populated or um, or are dominated by women. Um, and again, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But you were in the talk when I showed some, and I'd encourage anybody that's listening to do this, um, some images where I just Google searched veterinarian or veterinary medicine or veterinary um, and we all were we all spent four years in a very challenging uh, education system learning a lot of science and we work challenging physically stressful um, uh, cerebrally um, difficult days right uh, and when, when I look at some of the images that are out there in society and how people perceive us, and certainly with a lot of the things that I know is, um, that I know are going on in, in small and large animal private practice today about how we are valued or undervalued by our clients, veterinary medicine, I don't think is always, um, given the, the recognition it deserves for, for, for what we put into it um, and, and, uh, and what it takes out of us. Um, certainly, certainly to the level of uh, scientific integrity and, and knowledge. And I think changing some of the narrative and some of the messaging about who we are and what we are from we are a wonderful and compassionate and thoughtful group of people, but that's most of what's out there. It's not, it's not mm -hmm. the other side. And I think, I think that, I think that there's something there. I think that there's something there about what we look like to the outside world that has something to do with who's coming towards us. Um, and I actually think that thinking about it that way can help play a role in how we improve just diversity in the profession in general. You know, we look very female and very white um, yes. and, uh, I think that there are other ways we can approach our own narrative and messaging that might help us. Well, I, I completely agree. I, I think, I think my own thoughts on the, do we need to recruit men to vet medicine? I think we all understand the strength of diversity. I think that, you know, um, clients are more likely to trust us when they, uh, can see people who are like them. And we have a we have a we have the widest profession that there is. I, I think that works against us from a health of our profession standpoint. And so, um, I I think that increasing diversity I think is is always good. And so I, I think that totally makes sense. There was a study in 2016 that the New York Times did that I think a lot about, and it was an eBay study. 
And so what happens is the New York Times went and they worked with eBay and they set up a bunch of sellers to sell items. And, um, and so these would be like retail items. It would be something, you know, still in a box. It would be a, a DVD. It would be, you know, something, something that is mass produced. And they looked at what things sold for. And they looked at what the username sort of implied about gender. And so if the username implied uh, that, it, that the seller was a female or was female, then when we look at new items, uh, women sellers got less money for the exact same item as male sellers. And so like you're buying this thing that it, it's a new item. It comes in a box, you know, it's pre-wrapped and female sellers got less money. And I've wrestled with that and wondered with that. And one of the takeaways was if you sell on eBay, on eBay, use a, use a fake, you know, use a fake yeah, right. man name, use a big <laughs> be, early Gotta man. be John, right? Yeah. Be John. Absolutely. And they said, you know, the upside that was a little interesting was they said female sellers did tend to get higher ratings as far as sellers, um, even if they didn't have as much experience or they hadn't been doing it as long. But that's really sort of stuck with me that there would be a different price. And they also looked at the buyers. And so these aren't a bunch of men who were not paying women the same. These, these were women buyers as well saying, uh, you know, and I'm assuming it, it must just be internal bias because, again, you're buying the same item. And so I think about that and I think about our profession, the feminization of our profession. And I've just become a real believer that uh, just to support what you would, what you, your last point, we really do need to think about what switches we flip with clients and how do we set up our profession so that we run a healthy business and we kind of control the image of who we are and we set the parameters so that, you know, so that we are not going to be one of those professions where our income level sinks down and sinks down, right? We, we believe in our own value, but we believe in, in what we've invested into our degrees. And we're going to set this profession up to run in a way that, that works for us as well as for pets and pet owners. Right. And so I just, that's sort of a passion point of my own. So yeah, I agree. Thanks for being here and talking with me about everything. I really do appreciate your time. This is great. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. All right. So when, um, when your next round of research comes out that you referenced early on, uh, yeah. internal medicine stuff, I would love to hear about it. And I hope you'll come back and talk with us again in the future. It'll be my first call, Andy. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Have a great day. Uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was our episode. Thanks again to Dr. Morello for being with us. Guys, I, I hope this has been valuable. I hope that it's uh, been some good food for thought. Please, if you find these episodes valuable, go ahead, uh, share them with your friends. That's a big help for us. And, and or an honest review on iTunes helps us get the word out so that people can find the podcast. We have just had this podcast out for a week now, and so we are definitely in our infancy. You can make a big difference with that. If you like what we're doing here on The Cone of Shame, help other people in vet medicine find us. And that's all that I can ask. Thank you for being here, and I hope to see you back on another episode of the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Thanks a lot. Take care.